Turn with me to John chapter 9. As we move through the book of John, we make it now to an event uh, after Jesus left the temple. It says that he was, it, it, just, it just goes immediately to as he passed by, he saw. So Jesus is walking with his 12 apostles at this point is what becomes clear. Um, and the gap of time between these two events, what we were studying last week and what we see this week is not exactly clear. Um, but in this time, what we see is that Jesus heals a man who's been blind all his life. And that during this process of Jesus seeing the man and healing him, there's a conversation that takes place between Jesus and his disciples. And we see that the disciples assume that his blindness must have been a result of some particular sin. And as we will see, Jesus corrects them. And what we're going to focus on, especially in light of it being the 15th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, is the connection, or lack thereof, between sin and disasters. Sin and troubles that come upon us. So please stand for the reading of God's word from John chapter 9. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 12. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There, no more fly. Well, there may be another one. There's probably a lot more flies. We understand 
the idea of disasters being caused by sin, right? I mean, I know we just got done reading the story where Jesus said it was not this man or his parents who sinned, but it was for some other purpose, right? We'll get to that other purpose, that he was born blind. But let's be, let's be perfectly straightforward in saying that we understand, we know that there is a connection between disasters and sin, right? Let's take a look at some examples. Our sin causes problems for us. If you sleep around, you're going to get an STI. That's just the way the world works, right? That's a disaster. It's a problem. It's something that afflicts you. And it is in direct connection with your sin, correct? Now, does that mean that it is impossible to receive an STI some other way? No, of course it's also possible that we end up with various problems that are generally caused by our sin through some other course of events, right? But let's focus for a minute on our understanding that sin, we understand naturally, has consequences for us. In this particular case, herpes is a direct and natural consequence, right? God is clear that there are natural consequences. Romans 1.27 describes homosexuals, quote, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error, unquote. So it's natural for the disciples to assume that there has been some sin that this man or maybe his parents engaged in. But the thing that's confusing, to, well, let me, let me just back up and say, you, you know, not too much before this, Jesus healed somebody and said, your sins are forgiven. Jesus himself made perfectly clear the connection between the lame man's condition as a lame man and his sin. So the disciples have plenty of reason to assume that there's a connection. At least they have plenty of reason in our, in our minds when we think about uh, the way the world works um, and we see that that's a general truth. We want to make it a universal truth. And that's what the disciples are doing. They're making this general truth that when we have disasters, that, there are, that, that often those are consequences of our sins. And they want, to make, they want to universalize it and apply it to everybody. This is also what Job's friends did in the Old Testament, right? Job objects and says, no, wait, listen. This stuff cannot be coming upon me because of some unrighteousness in me. I've been righteous. I haven't done anything that would naturally lead to these disasters. And of course, he was telling the truth, right? So the disciples have forgotten the book of Job. 
But we also are inclined to forget the book of Job when we look at other people. We're inclined to forget about this blind man when we look at other people. But when we look at ourselves, we are inclined to forget that the vast majority of the cases, the general, is that disaster flows out of sin. So it all depends on who you're looking at, which way you want to make the mistake, doesn't it? If you try to break into somebody's house to steal their TV, they might shoot you. There's a lot of things that might happen, right? Stealing doesn't naturally lead to gunshot wounds, but in many cases it can lead directly to gunshot wounds, right? If you get shot in the leg, <clears throat> that's a direct consequence of your sin. If it comes about because you were breaking and entering and the person shoots you. If, on the other hand, it's because you, reached, you, had, you were carrying a gun in your pocket and you reached in it and it went off and shot you in the head, well, I mean, in the, in, the, in the leg, right? That might be a result of your stupidity and even of sin, but it's not a result of the sin of breaking and entering and stealing. So what I'm trying to get at is that there are, there are natural... Uh, there are natural consequences for many of our sins. Herpes would be an example of a natural consequence, right? God has built the world in such a way that, <clears throat> uh, that having many sexual partners leads to infections. That's just the way the world works. It's natural that this happens. It's also a direct consequence. But there are also direct consequences that aren't natural, like a gunshot wound. It's not like stealing will eventually lead to a gunshot wound. The world isn't made that way. That's a result of the fact that humans are going to interact with you in this way. They will object and bring about some sort of retribution. You maybe get, it, it may be that the direct consequence is that you end up in jail. That's a lot more likely, in fact, than that you would get shot, right? But there are also indirect consequences that come about from those direct consequences. Let me give you an example. If, using the same example, you were to be breaking and entering and then get shot in the leg and then end up lame for the rest of your life, that lameness for the rest of your life is an indirect consequence of the fact that you were stealing. It's an indirect consequence of your sin, right? You guys see how this works? Sin having direct consequences. And then anything that flows out after those direct consequences is called an indirect consequence. So you're learning a little bit about logic and philosophy and some weird stuff going on here. And it's not, it's not really necessary for us to understand all of this stuff in order to see what's going on, but it can help us to realize that our sins regularly, generally, 
have particular consequences that are bad things. So living lame for the rest of your life is a bad thing that nobody wants. It's what could be called a disaster, right? And there are ways that that happens that are direct or directly or indirectly a result of our sin. There are also ways that that could happen where it's not directly or indirectly a result of our sin. Let's use another example. If you kids are arguing over a toy, or a coloring book, or the crayon, which color, who's going to get the color green from the crayon box, all right? Your parents might just take away the coloring book and the crayons, or the toy. They may even throw it away. I saw that happen this last week to one child's, or two children who were fighting over something. <clears throat> that thing just went straight right into the trash. That's a consequence of our sin, right? Have you guys experienced this sort of thing? I'm hammering this point home because we, we so often want to separate the consequences from the sin and say that they have nothing to do with each other. And I know that in this passage, Jesus specifically says that the man who was uh, born blind was not a consequence of his sin. But let's at least start understanding what the disciples understood, which is that generally there is a connection when bad things happen to us. We can look back and we can look at the last five minutes and be like, oh, I see why I'm going to be lame for the rest of my life. It's because I was breaking and entering and I got shot. Oh, I know why my toy just got thrown away. It's because I was fighting. And so my mom threw it away. Now, there are other <clears throat> examples of consequences that don't flow uh, directly or indirectly. They're, they're, not, they're even less natural, if you will, um, in, the, in, the, in terms of consequences. A spanking is not a natural consequence of really anything in particular, right? It's a direct consequence of children singing, uh, sinning. Oh, if you sing, I'm going to spank you. Now, excuse me, sin, sin. It's a direct consequence of, of children sinning that they get spanked oftentimes, right? But there's another thing that the disciples understood that we often want to shy away from today. In fact, we, we want to shy away from this even more. And that is that our sins will cause problems for our children as well. You notice that they asked, not what did this man do to deserve to be born blind? How did he sin? But they asked, whose sin was it? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? 
And the reason they ask that question is because they recognize that our sins don't just affect us, but they affect our children as well. Now, so I'm sure you're all sick of hearing about the example of sleeping around, but listen, gonorrhea will have an effect on the child that is born to the person who has it. It can be anything from uh, it can be anything from premature birth to blindness to death. There's all kinds of consequences, and you see that's a consequence on the child for from that flows directly from the sin of the parent, right? And in fact, in Exodus. Chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. This is in the middle of the Ten Commandments, which we sang earlier. We read in the Second Commandment, God saying, For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So if you ever hear somebody talk about generational sins, this is what they're talking, or generational curses, this is what they're talking about. Now the beauty of this is that we also have generational blessings put right there next to it, don't we? But the promise is, if you sin, you and your children will be affected by this. Even down to the third and fourth generations. But if you live a righteous life, you and your children and thousands will be benefited from your righteous living. So that's the Old Testament. Now let's skip all the way forward to yesterday or earlier this week. Earlier this week, one town here in Ohio posted pictures online of a four-year-old child in the back of a car in the middle of the road with two adults unconscious and overdosing on drugs. Did you guys see that picture? It's been national news since then. <clears throat> now, the result of that was that CPS came and took that child into custody, into state care, right? Let me say without going into too much detail that many, many children are harmed and even abused while in state custody. You don't want your children to go into state custody. Why do I say that? Well, the consequences of the sin of the parents clearly affect the child, endangering the child's life in that car, right? consequence on the child, and then also endangering the well-being of that child by placing them into state custody. And you say, yeah, but the state took them away so that they wouldn't be in danger. And I say, yes, that's right. They are in less danger being taken into state custody at that moment. But remember what I said, many, many, many are harmed terribly while being in, in state care. 
we understand that there is, if, if we think about it honestly, we understand that there is a connection between our sins and the lives of our children. That they will reap the consequences of our sins in various ways. There is no denying that fact. Another example that we can see this in is if you refuse to do the work of disciplining your children, that is a sin. It will also lead to them sinning and having bad consequences, disasters even, in their life. I remember warning one man of the need to discipline his son. He never did. And you know, the consequence of him not doing that was that his son is dead today. That was a disaster that befell his son because of his sin. If we don't teach our children, if we don't discipline them and teach them to control their tongue, to control their anger, etc., their poor behavior that flows from that is a result of our sin. And the consequences also are a result of our sin and their sin. Right? Directly their sin, indirectly your sin. Now it's also worth pointing out that sometimes God judges us and disciplines us by sending consequences for our sin, but without any outward connection between the sin and the consequences. Right? A car accident can be what brings us to our senses while we're living in sin. How many of you have ever had, had a, uh, a disaster happen or been in, right up to a disaster happening and realized you need to repent of your sin? You took it as a warning from God that it was time for you to stop living in sin and it was time for you to repent, past time for you to repent. But there was no direct connection between the, the sin that you needed to repent of and the disaster that just came about or, or, or was just, by God's grace, barely averted. Maybe, maybe sometimes there are direct connections. I know of a, a man who uh, got in his first car accident because he was ogling somebody driving down the street. Boom! And what did he realize? Oh, direct consequence of my sin. I've been in a car accident. This is going to cost me a lot of money. And, you know, so maybe you narrowly avoid a car accident. You realize, you know what? I need to stop letting my eyes wander. I need to stop lusting. I need to repent of this sin. Or <clears throat> it may be that that car accident reminds you of something that's totally unrelated in your life. And you realize God is speaking to you in these, in these moments where he brings to mind your mortality or where he brings 
uh, you right up to the verge of or into disaster. And you're forced to reevaluate your life. So we understand that sin often causes consequences that we can understand, okay? And, I, and I'm including in this last category the consequence that in your own life you can understand the connection between that car accident or almost car accident and this sin in another area of your life. Nobody from the outside looking in at your life can connect those two things. But you can. Because there's no outward connection between them. But you know that God is calling you to repentance from them. And so our sin often, God causes consequences that we can understand. Even though some of them are direct, some of them are indirect, some of them are natural, And some of them, there's no outward connection whatsoever. Now then there are the errors that we can make once we understand that. And some of the errors that we can make are connecting errors, where we try to connect together disaster and sin. And this is what the disciples do in our story, right? They make a connecting error. They connect two things together that don't have any business being connected together. They assume that all the bad things that happen to people are caused by their own sin or maybe by their parents' sin. That's basically what the disciples assume. And we could make that same mistake. Jesus says that it wasn't a result of his sin or his parents' sin that that man was born blind. But interestingly, <clears throat> this is also the same error that you see in, in bad theologies of all sorts. The whole concept of karma and reincarnation is that there's this direct correlation. So reincarnation gives you the idea that if somebody was born blind, they must have really been evil in their previous life, and so they're still suffering for it in their reincarnated form. And this concept was actually well known around at the time of Jesus. The disciples probably would have heard this kind of teaching, even in the Jewish uh, religion, it had gained a foothold. And so that may be where some of the error was coming from, where they said, who sinned, this man or his parents? Well, if he was born blind, obviously it couldn't be something that he did that was terrible to deserve that prior to the event, unless there's such a thing as reincarnation, right? <laughs> And so we will say that people who suffer in this life, it's our way of ask, answering the question, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, here's this guy, he's born blind. He, didn't, he obviously didn't deserve it. So maybe he's just suffering the consequences of some previous life's sin. 
Or the other explanation is maybe it's a punishment on his parents for something that they did. That's the only thing that the, that the disciples can figure out as the two options. There are all sorts of ways that we can fight this error. Uh, the, the most basic one here today, this morning, is to look at the text where Jesus says it wasn't for either of these reasons. But there are other ways for us to see that as well. I also mentioned Job earlier as a great example. Reading through the book of Job is a, a good dose of healthy medicine to prevent this error. But you can also look at Christians who are martyred. What about Christians who are martyred? If it's the case that all bad things that happen to people are caused by their own or their parents' sin, then we would have to assume that all of the martyrs deserved what they got, rather than that it was a result of their faithful testimony to the goodness of God and to the message of hope and salvation that caused them to be martyred, right? So martyrs, or anyone who suffers for the sake of Christ, are another proof of the fact that we should not too closely connect sin to disaster. Right? But this is a temptation, particularly on the part of Christians, with those who are suffering for their testimony. It is a big temptation for us to look at them and say, boy, they are suffering. It's a shame that they're such jerks. It's a shame that they haven't learned how to properly speak without offending people. It's a shame that they're so sinful that they have to get people mad at them. If I were in their position, I would have been able to do it without getting mad at everybody mad at me and without suffering. That's the implication behind the statement of looking down on them for the consequences of their faithfulness. In other words, it's easy for us to justify our own unfaithfulness by pointing at the result of other people's faithfulness, the suffering that they go through, the disasters that they face in their life because of persecution. And to say, see, I'm doing it right. I'm not suffering. They are obviously sinning because they're suffering. But this is to get it exactly backwards, isn't it? If they are suffering because of their faithfulness, and we are not suffering, we ought to ask ourselves, is it because I'm being unfaithful? And this gets at a theme that I want us to return to a few times, and I want you to remember after you leave today, which is that in all of these circumstances, the question of sin, consequences of sin, disasters that befall us, disasters that befall other people, the most important thing in all of these cases is for you to be looking at yourself. 
Look at yourself more than you look at other people. Examine yourself more than you examine other people. Make assumptions about things that you know something about rather than about things you know nothing about. And that starts first and foremost with yourself. Look to know yourself. Look to interpret your life accurately by these principles. First, and most importantly. Now there's another connecting error that we can make. And this is connecting the severity of a, uh, of a disaster, the severity of a problem that somebody faces in their life, with the severity of their sin. The fact is that usually God doesn't punish us the way our sins deserve, but is very gracious and light in his discipline, isn't he? giving us warnings many, 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 many times. Not sending what we deserve. <clears throat> In Luke 13, 2 and 3, this particular connecting error is addressed by Jesus when he says, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? And he's speaking of, a tower that fell and killed a number of Galileans, right? He's interpreting this disaster. It's another disaster, a tower that fell and killed a bunch of people. He says, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this, this, this terrible disaster? Verse 3, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what does he do? He does exactly what I was just saying, which is turn the question around on yourself. Look at yourself. Examine yourself. When you look at yourself and you see the disasters that have befallen you and how light most of them are, how gentle the discipline of God has been, what you see over and over and over again is that you cannot connect directly the severity of your sin because you know how evil you've been. You know how you've been giving yourself to sin, how wicked you've been. And, and then you get this light little smack on the hand, this little flick, and it's like, oh yeah, ah, I should really go away from that before I get what I deserve, what I actually deserve. The severity that would really be connected with my sin would be death. Unless I repent, I likewise shall perish. On the other hand, once we understand that we cannot too closely connect, that we cannot assume that just because somebody is fallen into disaster of some sort in their life. But that's not proof of sin on the part of the person suffering. There are other errors we can fall into. 
And I would call these disconnecting or minimizing errors. Like I already said, humanly speaking, some of these things that happen to us are unrelated to our sin, right? There's no direct connection between them. But in God's economy, he has promised that sin leads to death. And that promise goes all the way back to the beginning in the garden. That was his warning to Adam and Eve in Genesis. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And therefore, it is important for us to remember that all pain, all misery, all disaster in this world is a direct result of sin, one way or another, all the way back from Adam, all the way back to Adam and forward to today and into the future. In that day, death and pain and despair and sorrow entered the world. And so we should never forget that there is a connection between all death and sin generally. Why does that matter? Well, because as soon as we deny that, we've got to deny the fall. And that is a temptation to us because we don't want to admit that man is sinful to his core. But looking around and seeing death and disaster, destruction, fighting, anger, and all of the fruit of the fall is a reminder of what man really is like on the inside. The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all else. Who can know it? So we have to first remember that, yes, there is a connection between sin and all death, all disaster, all suffering in our lives. There's another temptation that we face today, which is to deny that we can ever know that disaster came because of sin. If you deny that you can ever know that it came because of sin, then you have to remember our, that first half of what I was saying this morning. All those examples I gave where the connection was natural, direct, obvious, inescapable. It is knowable. in many, many, many instances that the consequences that we're facing are a result of our sin. We can know it often. We can even know it about ourselves in certain circumstances where other people can't know it because things in our life are hidden from them. But this is also true that throughout the Bible, the connection between sin and God's judgment are made clear. 
Now, the temptation will morph at this point to uh, saying, yeah, but when God spoke and said that his judgment was a direct result of sin, then we can know it. Right? You look in the Bible and you see that the Israelites were sinning and they were turning aside from worshiping God and they were beginning to worship idols and these other things and God warned them and said that he was going to judge them and then he did judge them and he sent disaster, right? And we know that it's a result because it's written in God's word. But we can't really know beyond that. And again, at this point, I would just look at you and say, okay, look, it does not require a direct word of God in his Bible to demonstrate that a particular consequence is the result of sin and that you can know it. All it takes is opening your eyes. Look at the examples again. Consequences of sin are often disastrous in ways that are inescapably connectable and knowable by us. At that point, it becomes our temptation to ignore obvious sin. When the sin is obvious in somebody's life and the judgment is a direct consequence of the sin. Are you following me here? The sin is obvious. The judgment, the disaster that comes is a direct consequence of the sin. We should never try to separate the judgment from the sin. The judgment is given to us as discipline from the Lord so that we may repent of that sin. And to try to deny and pretend like the sin doesn't exist and just somehow focus on the consequence of the sin without dealing with the sin that caused it is not to help them or ourselves. Because remember, where do we look first? We look first at ourselves in examining these things. Now I want to take that further, and I want to say, when the sin is obvious in your life, and a disaster comes on you that is not directly connected, it is not an obvious result of the sin, you still shouldn't hesitate to use the judgment as a warning to, to repentance in your life and in the lives of others. In fact, we can even use the disasters of other people as a warning for ourselves and others. And indeed, we should. This is what happened when the tower fall, fell in Galilee. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He's not commenting on how bad they were. 
He's using it as a warning that we ought to examine ourselves for sin lest that same disaster befall us. Now, there's another error that we can make that <clears throat> is very, very dangerous and unbiblical. And that is to individualize everything. God does not just send catastrophes upon individuals, but also, as we saw, upon families as a result of the sin of the parents, or upon groups, upon nations, and once upon the whole world during the flood. Direct result of the sin of the people, according to God, he says their thoughts were only evil all the time. And therefore he sent the flood. And he sent the flood on the whole world. God deals with groups. And God is clear in warning that nations will reap the consequences of their sin, not just individuals. Psalm 110, verse 6 says, He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. Now this psalm, among many other places that speak of God's judgment on nations, refers in, refers to multiple things. It refers to God's ultimate judgment that's coming when he sends his son Jesus to return. And at that point, the final judgment will come. He will crush the nations with a rod of iron. But it also refers to him pouring out other judgments in the meantime, as he has throughout history on nations. If our nation is judged by God for her sin, one of the hardest things for me to think about as I, as I dwell on that possibility, on that likelihood, is that Christians will suffer alongside non-Christians. When God judges nations, when God judges families, you regularly see that the sinful and the righteous suffer in the same ways. And in fact, this is exactly what happened 15 years ago today, on September 11, 2001. Christians and non-Christians died in an act of judgment from God. A warning to our nation. Augustine pointed out during a disaster in his day that Christians we're going to suffer the same way as non-Christians. <clears throat> One of the things that he said was that he, re he reminded the Christians that, in fact, many of them had engaged in exactly the same sins that, were being, that God was judging the nation for. 
and that others had kept silent about that sin as they benefited personally from that sin. And that others had delighted in the fact that other people were sinning while they kept themselves from going into that sin. And so what is his point? Well, his point is that we're not, as Christians, as innocent as we want to claim for ourselves with regard to the sins of our nation. And that even if we are entirely innocent, just our close association with the wicked puts us in danger of being judged along with them. This is the, you know, Lot was saved from the ultimate disaster that happened at Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet his life was a disaster. He lost his home, he lost his wife, he had to hide in the caves, right? The consequences of the sin on, in, or the consequences of the sin of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah still affected him, even if, even if God was merciful in reducing the consequences for he and his daughters, right? And so we can't individualize everything. To individualize everything is to fall into that same error of connecting sin and consequences too closely again, isn't it? Now maybe some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, wait a minute, he just said that September 11th was a judgment on this nation and he didn't comment on that at all. He didn't prove that to me. How am I supposed to know that that was a judgment on this nation? And I say, well, you should know that it's a judgment on this nation for a number of reasons. One, because the sin of this nation in the worship of money is obvious and plain for everybody in the world to see. Certainly, if you live here, you ought to know that we worship money. And two, because the Twin Towers that fell are the epicenter of the representation of the wealth of this nation and our worship of it. And so it should be obvious to you that those sins and that judgment are connected to each other. And this shouldn't be scandalous for me to say. In fact, we should take it as a warning as Christians to examine ourselves and see whether we also have given ourselves to the worship of things and money like the rest of our nation has. <clears throat> whether we have benefited from the sins of others that they have committed with money. And we should recognize that this is only a slight warning on the part of God, a, a tender flick of the wrist on our nation. Compared to what we truly deserve, 
a warning of the, the types of things that could come that are much, much more severe. Our nation didn't collapse on September 11th. Isn't that our whole proud re response? We emerged stronger from the rubble? But did we emerge warned? Did we emerge repentant? Or did we emerge recommitting ourselves to the love of money? <clears throat> I would ask you to look at the housing crash and answer that question. What was the housing crash other than proof that we had not turned aside from the love of money and the, and the lust after the things of this world? And you can, look at it from the, you can look at it from the standpoint of the people who own the houses. You can look at it from the standpoint of the banks who are giving the loans. You can look at it from the standpoint of the banks who are selling the loans to each other. You can look at it at any level you want to look at it, and what you will see is that the love of money was at the root of the housing crash and the crisis that followed. There's no level at which it's not obvious that that's what's going on. And how many of you benefited in some way from that crash? Others of you I know suffered, but I benefited. The government started up all these crazy programs of giving money to people, and I got money because of this. Now, does that make me sinful that I received money? No, except I want you to realize that this is exactly what we need to realize when we say that our nation is rejecting the warnings that God has sent. The warning, the, the crash was a warning. And then it was one of those complicated natural consequences. <laughs> natural and direct. With a lot of further indirect consequences. But when we think about, okay, but maybe we will suffer when this, maybe Christians will actually suffer when this, when this nation is judged by God. I say, yeah. Yeah, and you're not really as far separated from the sin and from the, from the deserving as we want to pretend, are we? Our greed is still on display. And so my point is not for you to look at the disaster that happened to our nation and to say, well, we can't know what God was doing there. No, we know. It was a judgment from God. Nor is my point for you to look at those people and say, oh, well, all those people who actually died must have been the really bad people. That would be to make the error of connecting it too closely, wouldn't it? 
So as we think about the sins of our nation, we think first about ourselves and repenting ourselves. And then we think about calling others to repentance. And then we recognize that these disasters, even the ones that are directly connected and a result, a consequence of sin, all come about so that the works of God might be displayed. So how do the works of God get displayed? When we receive judgment? When when disaster falls on us, how are the works of God displayed? Well, if sin is involved and if it is discipline, if it is judgment from God, then his power and his works are displayed through our repentance. And if sin is not involved, then his power and his works are displayed by warning us away from sin and by teaching us patience and reliance on him by testing our faith, by leading others to repentance and to Christ. All of these things are accomplished as God patiently and tenderly disciplines us in ways that are way, way less than our sins deserve. Let's go to him now in prayer.